Hello listeners, welcome to HIV in Focus. This is a podcast series created by Gilead Sciences to explore the most pressing issues for people living with HIV and to provide some practical bite-sized tips for clinicians from experts in the field. I'm Dr Naomi Sutton, I'm a consultant in sexual health working at Rotherham and I've also been lucky enough to have a few media roles including the E4 series The Sex Clinic and I try and use my media platforms to educate uh, the wider public on all issues related to sex. I'm absolutely delighted today to introduce Shalini Andrews who's going to talk to us about sexual function. We know, I mean the WHO state that sexual health is not simply an absence of disease, it should be focused on pleasure and I think as medics we're not always very good at opening up those conversations. Um, we've titled this podcast Let's Talk About Sex and I'm going to hand over to Shalini to introduce herself. Thank you Naomi, I'm Shalini Andrews, I'm a consultant in GU and HIV medicine based in Surrey. I, I'm passionate about sexual medicine and sexual medicine is managing sexual problems in um, people in, and enabling them to have good pleasurable sex. I'm the chair of the British Society of Sexual Medicine. So today when we're talking about sex, we may sometimes go into a gender binary of men and women, and that's because that's the way um, sexual problems have been largely studied. We do apologize for sticking to the binary. We don't by any means believe in that, and we'll try and broadly talk about people as much as possible. So Shalini, a lot of people might be listening and thinking, what does this field of medicine encompass? Because there's not a lot of people who have expertise in it. So tell me a little bit about what your job when you're doing a sexual dysfunction or function clinic entails. Yes, I think one of the big difficulties that professional ha- professionals have talking about sex is how do we, what are the difficulties that people could potentially have with having sex? Where do we start as, as medical professionals? So a very easy way to look at it is looking at the components of how human beings have sex. And this is just the way we've structured a framework. It's not not the be-all and end-all, but the way we kind of look at sex is desire. So feeling, wanting like having sex. The next step is arousal, which could be arousal in the genitals or the brain. We'll we'll talk about this a little bit uh, more later. And then there's either orgasm or a satisfactory sexual experience. And so things can go wrong with desire, arousal or orgasm or satisfaction, or there could be pain. So these are the four main things we could explore while talking to somebody about sex. And I guess a common thing that, um, well, even in the pub you hear is, I can't be bothered anymore. Can't be bothered to have sex anymore. It's especially... It seems a lot of women feel that, especially when they hit kind of middle age. So let's start with tackling that subject. So I guess desire. It's interesting because the way sex has been framed traditionally for men is about erections. It's always about a man performing, impotence, you know, terrible words, but that's how it's been framed. And for women, it's about libido. And let's move away from the framework and talk slightly differently. So Often, whenever, whatever women feel, they talk about it as desire. And whatever men feel, they talk about it as erections. But as professionals, I think we need to see which component of different things is affecting people. So we'll start with desire. So desire, what happens with desire? So there's different aspects of desire. The spontaneous desire. When you wake up in the morning and you think, I really want to have sex today. And that spontaneous desire. And everybody would like to feel a bit of that at some point. 
And But that's not the only way we experience desire, especially as we go through life, as we go through life's experiences. There's other aspects which come on. So you could have, you may wake up not feeling like having sex, but you may see the partner or partners that you really enjoyed having sex with or the environment that you previously had sex and had a great time. And you think, oh, that's turning me on now. And, and then you think, oh, I am feeling desire now. And that is responsive desire. So it's not spontaneous desire, but other things, positive experiences come to mind. And then you respond with desire. And actually responsive desire starts with arousal. So you feel turned on by the environment or the partner or the positive experience, and that leads to desire. So that's how, and equally, if it's a negative experience, you just don't feel like it. You think, oh, you know, I don't know if if I'll experience pain during sex. I don't know what, you know, what terrible thing he's going to ask me about other things, he or she, or whoever, and and that can actually turn us off. So, So desire can be spontaneous or can be responsive or can start with arousal leading to desire. And I think what I find really interesting about the topic is that we have to acknowledge that all these other things have to be in the right place in our mind. So, you know, the washing up has to be done and, you know, you can't be rushing off to get the kids out or walk the dog or, you know, when you're thinking, oh, I'd like to have sex this morning. There's so many other things that could be issues and factors. And I think that sometimes puts people into this cycle of not being bothered, the least you know when you stop having sex with someone it then sort of tails off more because again you haven't got those positive experiences to build on haven't they so I know um Karen Gurney talks about in her book Mind the Gap which is brilliant if anyone wants to read a bit more about that she talks about people allowing themselves to lean into the kiss I suppose so even if you don't necessarily feel that you want to have sex so you're not necessarily feeling turned on if you just let it happen rather than avoiding and that's sometimes what I talk to my ladies about, especially ladies, um, you know, or uh, sometimes men, but actually just letting it happen and not putting blockers in the way. Do you find do you find that kind of chat helps? Absolutely. So the second framework of thinking that I'd like to give to professionals in, in terms of sex is the biopsychosocial model. So when someone tells you they have a problem, the three ways we can look at it is what is going on biologically? Is there something biological happening that's causing a problem? Is it something psychological or is it something related to the social and relationship aspect? And what you touched on nicely is the psychological and the social and relationship aspect where it can be difficult to let go and to have sex and for various reasons. And I think that's where you know we need to get people to sort of open that up but also explore the factors which may have caused a negative experience, the fears, the the worries about sex. And I think that's where we open the conversation up and say, oh, that's that should be okay. Or you're worried about getting pregnant. You know, we can sort out the contraceptive and then you can enjoy sex without worrying about what happens next. So getting, you know, addressing the factors that causes the fears or causes the the, the blockage to having good sex. So I guess it's about asking those questions about what's stopping them and and getting people to think a bit more about why they might not be allowing themselves, I suppose, to be put in that situation. Yes. And I think for desire and arousal, that is a key um, history point in terms of a psychological or social relational aspect, but also to remember that it can be biologically a problem. 
So the things that makes us turned on around having sex is um, neurotransmitters. Up in the brain, there are things like dopamine, serotonin. Dopamine sort of makes us feel like having sex. Serotonin doesn't. And different levels of different things. And th there are aspects of, you know, there are things which can affect those levels, mainly medication such as um, antidepressants and antipsychotics. Or there can be other other physiological causes such as you know pregnancy or breastfeeding which can affect those levels a bit and we need to explore those as well in terms of the biology to say is there something is there a particular medication they don't actually need that they're on and could we write to their general practitioners to say do they need this particular antidepressant still is it affecting their sexual functioning can we change it hormones can affect sexual functioning so that's the second aspect and testosterone is the main hormone that causes desire both in men and women and for men, again, it's testing the testosterone level. In women, it's difficult to measure levels. But the key aspect of you know what knocks our testosterone down is menopause. And again, I'll reference you to the other very interesting podcast from menopause to talk about how that can be addressed. And so let, let's talk a little bit then about testosterone, as we've mentioned, especially with men. What kind of symptoms should we be looking out for um, to suspect low testosterone levels in men? When should we be when should we be checking? Interestingly, somehow testosterone is always linked to sex and it's to do with sexual desire or erections. And that's when we think about testosterone. And I think we need to think about testosterone when it comes to energy levels. And that is the first symptom that patients or people always tell me when they when I you know when I find people with low testosterone levels and I talk about symptoms, they say, it's feeling absolutely drained, not having the energy to do anything, not feeling, you know, feel like going out, putting on weight, putting on weight around the middle. And that, again, can be a symptom of testosterone deficiency. Uh, and we know that testosterone is really important for our bone health. So it's, it's the other aspects which are the key symptoms when you look at testosterone deficiency that we need to look at. Of course, when they do present with sexual problems, either with desire or with um, difficulties having erections, we will need to measure testosterone levels. And would you suggest that um, as HIV physicians we're doing this or would you suggest referring to the GP? We used to be very good at doing this at one point. And if you look back at the history of HIV, there was a time when people were losing a lot of weight and we used to give testosterone as to help with the weight loss syndrome of HIV. This is going back two decades. And we used, to, we used to be quite good at measuring it. And it is a simple test. It's got to be done in the morning because the levels fluctuate. And it's got to be done ideally before 11 o'clock in the morning after an overnight fast. And measure it again because the levels fluctuate. If it's low at one point, you, you repeat it, it could just come back to normal. Uh, it is an easy test to do. Uh, but I think we should think about doing it either by ourselves, ourselves or through the GP. And OK, so while we're talking about I fall into ladies and men which I probably shouldn't do but when, when we're talking about um, penises and vaginas it, it sometimes gets difficult and uh, we apologize if we insult anyone by calling anyone a lady or a man but we're we're trying to use simple terms um, so tell us about erectile problems so people so what what kind of questions should we be asking people who present with erectile problems Yep. Uh, thank you, Naomi. So again, coming back to this thing about, you know, we, we'll talk about people as people and we, we understand and appreciate that gender is very wide. It doesn't, it's not defined by the genitals or anything else. Unfortunately, a lot of our medical, the history or the way we've studied it has been based on a gender binary. So 
you know, we will be guilty at some point of using the binary, but we do apologize. Um, so, does, so erectile dis difficulties, if someone's got erectile dysfunction, what do we need to think about first? I would hear, you know, often I, I talk about holistic medicine, about the psychology, about the wider things. But when someone has an erection problem, the first thing to actually think about is the medical aspects. Because to get a good erection, we need good blood supply. And we know with our, particularly with our HIV positive people, the risk of cardiovascular disease is high, either because of comorbidities or for various different factors. And the, the artery which supplies the penis is much smaller than the artery which supplies the heart. So on average, if someone gets erectile dysfunction, it precedes the heart disease by about three years. So in three years time, they're going to get chest pain. And so it's really, really important to use that as your prevention strategy. So when, when someone comes in with erectile dysfunction to a cardiovascular risk assessment, ask about family history, ask about smoking, check the weight, check the waist circumference, the blood pressure, the cholesterol, the looking for checking for diabetes, because that is a chance to intervene and to prevent the heart disease that could potentially happen three years from then. So that will be my key, the first important, most important point, and it is very medical. And when you do your Q-risk calculation on your patients, again, for men, there is a box which says erectile dysfunction. And unless we ask those questions, we won't be able to do a proper Q-risk assessment for cardiovascular disease. So cardiovascular disease assessment is key, absolutely key, irrespective of their age, irrespective of anything else, just do it. And the second thing we talked about was testosterone levels because the hormones do affect sexual functioning. And again, that's a chance to measure levels, address it if there is a problem. And then the third thing I'd sort of think about is any other medical conditions. Medication. There is a lot of medication that are associated with sexual problems, not particularly the HIV medication. The main culprits tend to be things like um, blood pressure medication. And sometimes people are started on medication years ago and they just continued on it. It hasn't helped the blood pressure much. Thiazide diuretics, uh, beta blockers, they used to be the first ones we used. The NICE guidelines, the national guidelines have changed. We use different classes of drugs now, but we need to again check whether there are medications that people are taking that, that is causing a problem with erections. There could be medication they could be taking over the counter for things like hair loss, which could be contributing to poor sexual functioning. So asking about a medical history and addressing that again is key. And then we come on to the psychological, the social, what, what were sexual experiences like? Is using a condom difficult? Because again, condom-associated erectile dysfunction is a thing. It is a diagnosis in itself. And for a long time, particularly with HIV medicine, we've been going on and on and on about condom use. And that itself can put people off. So again, asking about how they have sex, what is putting them off, is that contributing to their erectile problems? And I guess one, for me anyway, when I'm asking about erectile problems, to try and determine whether it's more likely to be a medical cause or a psychological cause is asking, do they have morning erections? So if you have a really good morning erection, it's unlikely to be a nerve or a vessel um, or a, any kind of endocrine problem it's much more likely then to be related to performance pressure or some situational issue with erection would, would that be right absolutely and more than morning erections morning erections can vary with men over time so morning erections are not sexual they're not you know we call them wet dreams but they're actually the body just pumping and, and you know, doing it doing its sort of you know um, maintenance work 
And so if the morning erections are good, it's, it's unlikely to be a medical problem. The second thing is masturbatory erections. So if they can masturbate and have a good erection up to the point of ejaculation, but cannot do it in partnered sex, then it, it points more to um, either psychological or relational factors. And it's very common, isn't it, erectile dysfunction in men? Yes, very common. And particularly with our people living with HIV, as people get older, we know that we are dealing more and more with an older cohort, we are very likely to see it. So any anywhere between 50 and 80% could complain of erectile problems. And again, it's the duration which matters. It's okay to occasionally have a problem with erections, but if it persists all the time for at least six months, then, then we need, do need to look at medical aspects and address them. Well, I was reading some study the other day that erectile problems are happening more frequently in younger age groups as well, partly related to porn use and all sorts of things, but often that's related to psychological issues. But I guess having a HIV diagnosis may, you know, knock you off your, knock you off, what, what would you be knocked off? Not sure, but knock you off something to make you feel very uneasy about having sex, I suppose. So, you know, that may actually be enough to cause a problem. Um, but I think unless we talk about it and address it, we're not going to know. And it's a little bit like, you know, when people start these blood pressure medications, I bet none of them got counselled about erectile problems or very few. And so I think it's it's just opening up that conversation, isn't it? Absolutely. So, so two different things that can happen. So in my practice, I see a lot of older people diagnosed with HIV for the first time. And we often think if they don't have erections, they're not going to catch an infection. But that's absolutely not true, because what happens is when they get older and they lose their erections, putting a condom on can become more difficult. So people who are usually very careful about sexual, you know, about their sexual, not catching a sexual infection, now lose that ability to protect themselves. So important in terms of prevention to address sexual problems. The second thing is, you know, how did yeah the HIV acquisition, the whole worry about transmission, that can all contribute to sexual problems. And with U equals U, now that we moved on from that conversation, it's it's really important to try and address that. And make sure, yeah, make sure everyone knows the U equals U campaign. I think that definitely helps. Yeah, and also how have they translated the U equals U to to their lives? Have they really got the message? And I, do we need to talk to their partners as well? And it's, it's again, opening those conversations. So if we talk a little bit about clitorises, because it's my favourite topic, I always feel, I mean, in medical school, I didn't even know the anatomy of the clitoris. I think clitorises get, they don't get enough airtime or they don't get enough research. But I guess the same, a similar kind of problems can happen with women, um, with orgasm and arousal as it can with men because it's the same philosophy isn't it they have to have a good blood supply and nerve and endocrine etc so if someone didn't have or, or had an orgasmia for example how would you deal with that yeah the clitoris is a very large organ and I would I would encourage people to go and look up online to see how big the clitoris is apart from what we see and it's not a very visible organ and the second aspect is women are not taught to look at their genitals. Uh, it's not so conspicuous for us. And it's almost, you know, traditionally, they're always you know, told, don't look down there, it's dirty or it's whatever. So exploring the genitals is not something women generally tend to do. It's, it, things are changing, things are shifting, but they need to shift some more. And clitoral orgasms are the main orgasms women feel. So the majority of women can orgasm from the clitoris. 
only a small number orgasm from the vagina. So in terms of our sexual pleasure, the clitoris is an absolutely important organ. And all these aspects of, you know, um, having a good blood supply, having a good nervous system, not having skin problems, not having um, genital atrophy, it's all important to have good clitoral health. And only thing to remember is there are two aspects of um, arousal. And this has been particularly studied in those with um, clitoris, as opposed to a penis where you see an erection. So when you have a clitoris, and you can have a genital arousal, which can be a clitoral arousal, which can be lubrication, and then there is a cerebral arousal. And sometimes there is a disconnect between the two, which can be psychological. So the clitoris is getting turned on. It is, you know, you're getting lubricated, but don't want to translate. The circumstance may be wrong. So the brain doesn't want to get turned on at the same time. Sometimes there can be things like menopause. So that, you know, there's dryness. There's no, you know, there's no lubrication. Things, the genitals are difficult to get turned on, but the cerebral, the brain is still getting turned on. And actually, we can use one aspect or both aspects to help achieve a satisfactory, a pleasurable sex, sexual experience without one or the other being being a cause. But the clitoris is absolutely important in you know how we experience sex. But also, but don't again, you know, sex is very versatile. Don't don't be uh, committed to one organ for sex because we know that you know when people have to have a clitorectomy. They could be taught to orgasm, they can reorient the orgasms to other aspects of the body, like the nipples, like the other, you know, there's, there's so much to our sexual pleasure that can be achieved, rather than focus on one aspect or one way of having sex. And also talking about pleasure, I know when we're talking about this podcast, we're very good at asking when was the last sex, but we very rarely um, ask, was that any good? Or if they say, oh, last sex was two years ago, we don't generally say, well, is that okay with you or why not? And especially with women, I feel we don't talk about masturbation or solo sex. Um, and as probably everyone who knows me knows, I'm a big fan of sex toys and talking to women about masturbation and learning how their own bodies work. And, you know, and, and again, I think that's a conversation that we should all be having because even if you're not with a partner, it doesn't mean you can't have genital pleasure from your, from your own clever fingers or toys. Absolutely. So you've just you just hit the nail on the head. It, you know, sex is so wide, so broad, so complex, so pleasurable and so much fun. And it's not about partners. It's not about one part of the body. It's not about, you know, there are so many different ways we can enjoy and explore sexual pleasure. Just taking us back a little bit to the history of HIV and, you know, where we started. And, you know, I started my journey sort of in the 90s when I was a medical student. And it was so focused on transmission. We were so worried about transmission and all the conversations was about how not to pass it on to a partner. You know, use your condoms, use protection. If the condom fails, use in a post-exposure prophylaxis. And U equals U is wonderful, undetectable, is untransmittable. People on, you know, on effective treatment do not transmit the virus anymore. And finally, we can shift that conversation from, from all that sex negativity to sex positivity. We can actually bring them back up and say, actually, how are you having sex? You know, how, what, what's happening? And I'll come back to the WHO definition of how it's not about sexual health. It's not about the absence of disease, absence of dysfunction. It's actually about a very positive, respectful approach to sex. And to understand that we are, we are allowed sexual pleasure without fear, without coercion, without exploitation, and the fear of anything being transmitted. And it's time to move that conversation forward. 
And again, while talking to people when they say, oh, I haven't had sex because I don't want to think about it at all. Actually, as you said, solo sex is sex. So we can open that conversation and bring people in to say, have you explored your body? Do you? And, and I have, I often hear, again, interestingly from women who say, that department is closed the day you gave me the diagnosis. And, and, then, and so if, if that happened, it's, it is our duty to open the department again and to say, yes, we've had the diagnosis. We've had those negative conversations in the past, but things have moved on. Um, have we helped you move on with the, with the rest of it? Um, sex toys are great. Exploring your own bodies is great. And also knowing that wherever we are, you know, it's sex is not just about young people. It's not just about the able-bodied. It's just not about genders, but actually everyone is entitled to pleasure. And how can we help our, our people we look after achieve that? I know I think it's really interesting that we're talking about pleasure as an entity because I think especially in sex education, especially when I was growing up, it was all sex education was just about don't get pregnant. And if you were lucky, they mentioned an STI, but there was nothing about why people have sex. And ultimately, we all want to have intimacy, don't we? That's what we're searching for. And sex is part of how we find that. And, and, and again, I think lots of people grow up with very negative views of sex or shame or, you know, so so again, it's a, I think it's about us just doing a little bit of education within the clinic and exploring those views sometimes and, you know, giving a, an alternative. Yeah, absolutely. Alternative kind of viewpoint yeah. that pleasure's okay. That's what we're supposed to be seeking out of life, isn't it? Yeah, and actually, you know, that's what, you know, moving the conversation, when did you last have sex and was it was it with a condom or not with a condom to actually, was it pleasurable sex? Did you want to have sex? And if you didn't want to have sex, why are you having sex without wanting it? Because again, that can be, that can be the huge barrier to pleasure. Actually not, you know, made to do something that you don't want to do or, or not asking the partner to focus on your pleasure as well and not being about the other person. Another thing that I... I always uh, ask my my female patients not to do is do not fake an orgasm because by us faking an orgasm, which to be honest, I, every woman I speak to has, has definitely faked at least a few. If we carry on faking orgasms, then it doesn't give our partners any idea about what we then need to orgasm. So we get in this cycle of, um, you know, going, oh, that was, I won't do any uh, sound effects. No one needs to hear those. Um, but, you know, you fake an orgasm and then they, they will do the same thing. And so that builds into that cycle that we're talking about, desire and, and all the rest of it. So actually, by us knowing our body, understanding how we orgasm is the best thing to do, because then we can try and communicate and translate that into the bedroom with a partner, can't we? I, I agree with that. Um, you can try not to fake orgasms, but I think that should go hand in hand with education of the partner to say that sexual pleasure is very wide. Our sexual repertoires are very wide. So even women who don't enjoy vaginal, who don't get vaginal orgasms, enjoy vaginal sex. So sexual pleasure is not just about orgasms, but much more. And the male partner needs to understand that actually you're enjoying sex, even if you're not orgasming. And it doesn't have to come together at the same time. So somehow, again, that's the common misconception that both need to orgasm together at the same time in one explosive moment. And to say, actually, <laughs> don't, don't wait for that to happen and just make sure you take turns that happens on the Hollywood movies only really doesn't it yeah no and and again I think taking pressure off the need to orgasm and make it about touch and 
connection and enjoyment rather than you know making it about that you know, we have to keep going until this magical orgasm moment happens um and you know just saying actually that was lovely and you know i've i've had enough now I, maybe it sounds a bit too te- uh, functional doesn't it but um you know something along those lines is totally okay um just while we're talking um another common thing that i seem to get asked about in in clinic with regards to um women is painful sex and i think that's not very well understood in in a lot of cohorts so obviously you know we're very good at i guess the gynecological causes but when there isn't a gynecological cause so there's no skin problem there's no you can't see anything and and really that then comes down to this sort of genital pain syndrome so either vulvodynia or vaginismus can you explain a little bit about that umbrella term just so people at least have an idea of what that possibly entails it's very interesting. I think my one, the first thing I would sort of say is try not to medicalize the patient as much as possible. And vaginal pain syndromes exist. So there are conditions where the nerve endings are firing away and you can't see anything and it's just painful to touch. And that's vulvodynia. That's just pain that happens. It can be provoked or it can be unprovoked and it's just painful all the time. And vaginismus, we sometimes use the term, it's, it's a term that's gone off now because it's more the vaginal spasm that happens in response to pain. So the woman doesn't want, you know, the person with the vagina doesn't want to allow anything into the vagina because it's painful. And often I'd explore why that is happening because sometimes people can't have a vaginal examination with a speculum, but sex is absolutely fine. Or it can happen with one partner, but not another. And it's putting that connection back. So if you don't want to have sex, you don't have to have sex because if you do, If your vagina doesn't listen to your brain, if your brain tells your vagina do not have sex because this is going to be painful or this is not a nice person you're having sex with or last time it was very painful, we need to address why the brain is saying that to the vagina rather than saying just clench clench tight, you know, and say it'll all pass and, and just let it happen, which often happens with people. And again, looking at factors like is there lubrication? Can we recommend a good lube, the, you know, good lubricant, silicon-based ones? There are, there's a whole range in the market now. There are good vaginal moisturizers, again, treating um, menopausal symptoms to make it pleasurable. But also, is the whole experience pleasurable? So it's not, are they going straight on to penetration? And this, she's just never experienced pleasurable sex before, which is not going to make anyone want sex. So those are the other aspects we do need to look at before we get into diagnosis of, you know, either vulvodynia or vaginismus. Vaginismus per se is not a diagnosis in itself. It's a response to something else. Yeah, I always describe it a little bit like um, it, it's a reflex, isn't it, if you, if, you, if you have vaginal spasm. So it's not something that you're trying to do because often they'll go, yes, please. And, and also I think the during the history taking, it's normally like a burning sensation, isn't it, on on um entry i suppose if you're trying to have penetrative sex that's normally what people describe so it's like a a burning at the entrance of the vagina yeah and it is a very treatable condition so that is the other aspect of the two things with somebody with vulvodynia who's got burning during sex is one acknowledge the symptoms because that can go a long way rather than telling if telling somebody it's all in your head because it's not in, all in the head it's 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 a physical symptom that they're feeling and it is a condition we recognize and it's important to tell people look you know make sure you make a proper diagnosis and tell people look this is the condition you've got 
And then the next step is saying, what can we do to help that? And then again, there's a whole lot of treatment strategies from local anesthetics to medication that can be used to manage the condition. And both are very helpful. And, and I think with all sexual problems, the main thing is to not, not dismiss people, not to have a look and say, oh, everything looks okay. We don't know why you're feeling this, you know, go away or deal with it, which is not very helpful. 100% agree with that. Yeah, and I, yeah. I think acknowledging that someone's got a problem, even if you don't know personally what's going on, just saying, you know, I, I believe you, this is awful, this must be difficult for you. Um, and then talking, you know, even talking about how that affects the relationship can help. Because again, we've talked a lot in all these podcasts about actually just listening is so helpful to patients and just having someone that they can talk to who, even if you don't understand fully, will listen and, and empathise. And I think with any chronic medical conditions, many studies from the menopause studies to other things have shown the people they will come and talk to, people living with HIV will come and talk to is their HIV physician. We built the trust, we built the rapport, we see them frequently. So I think we should be the people opening those conversations and then signposting people. If it's within your expertise, manage it. If not, make sure you signpost it and signpost them, but also ask them the next time when they come to say what's happened. So Shalini, this is, I mean, we've covered a lot. Can you try and sum up top three or top, well, however many tips you want, but the top few that you would like all the listeners to take home with them? I think the first step is to start the conversation around sex. So you could start it however you want, but in your consultation, I think you need to say, you know, if you start like me, but when did you last have sex? And if they say, I haven't had sex in a long time, I would say, why is that? And is, people are entitled not to have sex, but is that causing distress? So that is the main thing I would focus Would you like to be having more sex? And if not, what what is coming in the way of having good sex for you? And and to start opening that conversation, having a discussion around it. The second aspect for professionals is to sort of think about the biopsychosocial model because it's a very broad framework and it's very easy to do it. So is it something medical that's going on? And I think as professionals, we are quite, quite good at looking at, you know, what could be causing this particular problem and dealing with it. Is it psychological? Is it relationship? And then open again, starting the conversation would help people address it. Often people find their own solutions as, as long as they're allowed the space to talk things through. And my third top tip is U equals U. Undetectable is untransmittable. It's of such a wonderful time as people um, treat managing those living with HIV. This is such a good time to be talking about sex because for the first time we don't have to worry about transmission. We're not worrying about the third person in the room that we can't see. We are worried about the people in front of us. So it can't be a better time to open that conversation about sex. I love that. I love that. I think, yeah, let's just let, well, we titled it, let's talk about sex. So let's think a little bit more broader about what that means to people. That was brilliant. So thank you so much, Shalini, for taking the time to talk to me. Um, have you got any social media handles that people can find you on? I'm on Twitter at Dr. S. Andrews. Brilliant. So thank you, everyone, who's listened to this episode of HIV in Focus. If you enjoyed it, do tune in to one of our other episodes. HIV in Focus has been created and fully funded by Gilead Sciences.